Amen. Matthew chapter 3, uh, we always take the Christmas season to do Advent. Um, now we're like, well, we're bra on Christmas, but we always like to take the opportunity to take one more Sunday to just reflect. We've looked at a prophecy of Jesus. We've looked at uh, Jesus the King. Today, we're going to be looking at, well, what's our response to all that Matthew has presented in terms of who Christ is? Now, as you turn there, um, I want to set the stage for you. So we're going to be in Matthew 3. So as you turn there, as a preacher, we are taught to be concise. You're just like, yeah, right, whatever. No, we are. We actually are taught to be concise. We're actually told that, chances, uh, that the chances of people remembering what we say are slim to none. Uh, so be Concise. You know, I one of my classes in seminary, uh, it was a whole entire semester, 15 weeks, just about preaching, better known as homiletics, if you want to know. Uh, and in this class, my professor asked over and over again, what's the point? What's the core proposition? The thesis statement, the big ideal, the main point, the sermon in a nutshell. Well, I think you get the point. Perhaps some weeks I hit that well, perhaps some weeks I don't. And when I don't, my wife is very clear to tell me I didn't. No, I love her. She is wonderful in helping me. It is difficult, right, for people to remember 9,000 points, right, pummeled over their heads. If truth be told, most preachers don't remember their own points after a few seconds of saying them. I've actually tried on, the, on myself before, and there are times when I think about a message that I preached a while ago, and I often go, oh, what, what, what did I say? But you know what I do remember, not only from opportunities and the privilege of me preaching, but from messages I heard. Oftentimes what I do remember is the, the one sentence, right? The, the one word or phrase that kind of ate away at my thoughts. In the end, the message was this one point, right? What about you this morning? What if I gave you the task of taking the message of Jesus, the gospel, to the masses in one point? What if I gave you one word, three words, eight words, maybe I give you a sentence? What would you say? Love, peace sacrifice, atonement, freedom from slavery, victory. How does one articulate the gloriousness of the gospel? How does one express not only how glorious and joyous it is, but its seriousness, right? There's a lot at stake. What is the core proposition? What is the one thing of the gospel? How can you make the hearers feel the weight of this message? Well, John, wearing a camel hair suit and eating locusts, was given such a task. This simple man was charged with preparing the way for King Jesus. That, by the way, we have looked at thoroughly over the last few weeks. Matthew has put Jesus forward as King Jesus. The simple man comes after Matthew sets the stage, and he prepares the way for this king. You know what? And he does it with only nine words. 
he summarizes the gospel, or more specifically, we could say this morning, our response to King Jesus. We can marvel at who he is, and we should, right? Because it's overwhelming in all that Christ is. But what is our response? It's one thing to be in awe, to be inspired, to be overwhelmed, but it's another thing to say, well, what do I do with this Jesus fellow? Well, John in his camel hair suit gives us pinpoint clarity on how we are to respond to King Jesus. So Matthew 3, if I were to make it plain, is a concise statement. John offers us a sermon in a nutshell, if you will. So follow along with me, Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12. I have it up on the screens for you, but certainly do follow along on your electronic communication device. But let's look at, we, uh, Matthew has set the stage. Jesus is, is fulfillment of all things Old Testament, fulfillment of all prophecy. He's King Jesus. And then now chapter 3 really shifts the gears out of the birth narrative into, okay, now Jesus is on the scene, all right? So John, verse 3, uh, Matthew 3, uh, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here it is, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Can you imagine the scene? Wow. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, be, coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. This is strong imagery. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's message is simple, but it is profound. Now, there are several things that we learn from John's profound and concise statement. Verse 2, let's look at it again. Here it is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First, as you see his summary uh, or his sermon in a nutshell, you see this ugly word in there, right? Repent. 
And then there's this strange statement that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Perhaps it's wise for us to deal with repent for just a minute. Literally, a change of one's mind, a feeling of remorse, repent, a a, a be converted, a change has occurred. Now, probably, if you're anything like me, and because this is how my brain works, when you hear the word repent, you hear, repent, and thou shalt be saved, right? Though that's true, (laughs) it's thoroughly true, I'm afraid that repent has lost its effect on us. We hear it over and over again, and it's a very churchy word because it came from the mouth of Jesus, but it is of utmost importance. Unfortunately, this word has been hammered away on pulpits, causing us to see it as a frustration rather than as our joy, and therefore we hate it. Often our view of repentance is, as a guy named Calvin Miller put it, is this. Repentance is a doctrine reserved for people like Adolf Hitler or somebody who has done something really wrong. I mean, it's a category for some of us in the room, and for me included, it's a category for all the really big, nasty sins. Oh, yeah, that person needs to repent. Ooh, that person needs to repent. The murderer needs to repent. The rapist certainly must repent. The dad who flies off the handle at his kids. What about the seminary student who feels puffed up with pride? What about the businessman who treats their employees unfairly? See, the things that may not be as obvious as other things. Well, John has in view all of it. John has in view all of those scenarios. What needs to be changed about you? What patterns of behavior caused by wrong thinking need to change? What wrongs are we aware of and know that need to be changed? I'll be the first to stand in line and to, um, in humbleness, tell you that repentance is not easy. Now, I've shared this story before, but it's a very good story. When I was in college... We had a, a professor. Her name was Newhouse. She was a bit crazy. We called her Miss Nuthouse, but she was awesome. She was wonderful. Now, she taught science, and she was the teacher that everybody wanted because she was very lenient in all of her grading. Well, wouldn't you know, I walk into class, and there is a pop quiz to which I had not prepared for. Shocking, I know, but I was unprepared for. I'm sitting there, a friend of mine next to me who was way smarter than I was, begin to just say, A, B, A, C, E, A. The voice of heaven. And I just go to writing them all down. The moment I laid that sheet of paper, and this is an insignificant pop quiz, insignificant in, in terms of your entire grade. As soon as I laid it down, wouldn't you know, the Lord worked on me. Wouldn't you know that my heart just sunk and I was sick? Because what I had done was wrong. Now, I walked away justifying. I walked away and made a million and one excuses in my brain to why I don't need to talk to her. I don't need to make this right. Surely, this is no big deal, Lord. 
So this went on for a few days. Now, I went to a Christian college, mind you, and we had chapel services. Hmm. So one Friday, we're in chapel service, and of course, from beginning to end, I'm just riddled with conviction, knowing that repentance is the right response. And now, I never saw Miss Newhouse ever come to chapel service. So I said, well, Lord, if I happen to see her, I'll go talk to her. Um, your head's on a swivel, looking around the room, nowhere to be found. And wouldn't you know, at the very last little bit of the, uh, uh, our chapel, I walk out the door, and she's right in front of me. Hi, Miss Newhouse. <laughs> I saw her headed to her office, so I just followed her straight to her office, and I said, I just, and I just I unloaded. I, the Lord's been dealing with me, that pop quiz, I just wasn't prepared, I cheated. And, you know, in, in college, it's kind of a big deal, because you could basically, you're gone, right? Get off of campus. She looked at me, she said, and she'd been teaching for many, many years, and she said, out of all the years I have been teaching, no one has ever done what you're doing. I'm like, well, yeah, because they're probably smart, and they didn't, like, you know, have to cheat. She said, you know what I'll do? She said, you can take that grade. What? She said, or uh, you can just retake it right now, or you can take a couple of days and study, and I'll let you retake it. I was floored. I was like, well, I can't take the grade. That's not my work. I'm certainly not prepared right now, so I'll go study. Yeah, you know, I studied all right. Um, didn't really do well on that quiz, but here is a moment in life that we oftentimes wrestle with, right? Well, the murderer must repent, right? Because it's obvious. But here was something just between me and the Lord and my friend here who could care less. But here was a moment that King Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, was working on my heart. And I had to respond. And in the end, even if the story didn't turn out well, even if she said, okay, well, we've got to deal with this. And maybe I lose scholarship or I lose something. Still would have been completely worth it. I want us to understand when we hear the word repent, it includes all of that. Repent, no longer live as you are currently living. Radical transformation, even down to your thoughts. Even down to the way you think about the world and you. The way you think about your purposes, your finances, all of that is radically changed when King Jesus came into the world. Even down to your thoughts. You may be thinking, but, but different how? Well, we're going to see that a little bit in a moment. But what about this other phrase, kingdom of heaven is at hand? This call to repentance is based upon the arrival of the kingdom, which here is Jesus himself. Now, in a nutshell, kingdom is those who live under the rule and reign of God. They have been long anticipating, waiting for God's rule and reign to happen. And Jesus is saying, it, it is here. It is here. And because it's here, repent and follow me. In faith, trust me. That's in essence what he is saying. But I think before we can understand the kingdom of heaven thoroughly, let's look at verse 3 and understand what is being said there. Verse 3. For this, now John has given his sermon in a nutshell. Verse 3 pops up and gives us some clarity. Why is John doing this? For this is he, John, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, prophet Isaiah said that there's a voice of one crying in the wilderness, this voice, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
Matthew reminds us, like a good preacher, and really as he has been doing the entire first two chapters, he's showing us John, like Jesus, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There was a belief from Isaiah 43 that one would come before the Messiah to announce his arrival and to prepare the way. It was common practice for a king to send ahead a person, right? A person who got everyone ready for his arrival, right? Because the person coming is kind of a big deal. So here in this tremendously symbolic way, the people of God had waited for one to come and prepare the way for the king. And here is John. He's the one to go ahead of the king to prepare the way. Imagine the power behind this moment. Imagine John coming, preparing the way, saying, He's here, he's here, he's here. How do we prepare? Repent. <laughs> For the kingdom of God is at hand. He is here. Can you imagine the long-awaited desire for the king to come and the one is coming before in a very sense? They know what's happening. The king is here. The king is here. The king is here. I would assume there's fear and also a sense of freedom now. The king is here. They've been waiting for this kingdom, right? The theme throughout the Old Testament, also in the New Testament, what? Referring to the people who would live under the rule and reign of God. They've been longing for this. The anticipation would have been killing them. And really in a symbolic way, and more than symbolic, but a prophetic way, John comes on the scene before the king to get everyone ready. And their preparation is repent. <laughs> We cannot let this word lose its weight on us. The arrival of the king by necessity means our response is to repent and in faith follow him. Imagine what they're seeing. Imagine what they might have felt. Maybe you're in the crowd going, come on, John, can't we sharpen our swords? Can we perhaps get the rebellion ready to the current system? You're telling me the king's here. You're telling me the king has arrived, the long-awaited kingdom of God is at hand, and you want me to repent? But no, this is John's message. His way of preaching the message of Jesus is in nine words, and it's this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's simple, but I think we all understand it's extremely profound. Sometimes we think of repent as that first move of what we would call conversion, right? That's necessary. I had a spiritual mentor tell me often, we live a life of repentance, right? Leaning into Christ the more every day. Because King Jesus is here. And this is the proper response to King Jesus. He has authority. He's the one who knows all things. So in essence, John is coming ahead saying, he's here with great joy. Repent of all your old ways and follow him. Mark records it as repent and believe. And Mark records 
John's words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Evoking in them a sense of faith and trust. He is here. Turn to him. Let's see how John teaches us a little bit about repentance, okay? Let's look at verses 4 to 6. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair. Anyone wearing that today? No? We're good? All right. A leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. All right. It's very clear. Uh, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going to him. In verse 6. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. What, What must that be like? First, you have John, who's not very fashionable at all, right? Verse 4, I don't know about you, but it kind of seems a bit out of place. I don't really care what he's wearing. (laughs) I mean, as long as he's got some clothes on. But yet, John is described in a way that is odd. I feel like it's a bit weird for Matthew to include that he would have a camel suit on, A garment made of camel hair. It's all tied together with a leather belt, and he's on an all-natural diet of locusts and wild honey. What what are these details meant to do? I don't think we need to run out and buy camel hair suits and begin to eat locusts and wild honey. I don't think that's necessarily the point here. In typical Matthew fashion, and, and even in the birth narrative, what do we see about Jesus? He's not very flashy, is he? He comes on the scene humbly, identify with his people. And here, John was not flashy, nor is he fashionable. There seems to be nothing that would draw people towards him. But then we get verse 5, people flock to him. His message is heard. And you know what people do? They respond with repentance. (laughs) What a growth strategy, huh? Man, I can't tell you how often I get stuff in my emails or telling me, here, church growth, church growth. They don't really mention this as a good church growth strategy. But people are flocking to John. And they are actually confessing their sins. And maybe that's exactly the point. People respond to his message, not him. They're not responding to pomp and circumstances. What are they responding to? The message of repentance. Why should I repent? The kingdom of God is at hand. He's here. Fulfillment has come. This seems to be heightened by the description of John. Nothing about him seems to be that he is a sane individual. Now, maybe camel hair suits were normal then. I'm not sure. But this interesting detail... Matthew, even underneath all the grammar, which I don't explain to you, Matthew actually slows down the action with these details. It's almost like a scene of a movie, you know, where everything's fast-paced, and then that one little paper in the corner, it goes slow right by the paper, and then it moves up again, almost to say, oh, there's something about that. Even the way Matthew is recording this, when he gets to these details, he almost wants to slow it down for us to see, oh, it's his message that people are responding to. And there's a host, of ins- a host of insight that we can look at, we think about when we gather, that's for another message. But they're responding to his message. What does repentance look like here? Confessing sin. Simply, that's what repentance is. 
It seems here that this word repent has caused them a certain freedom to say, here's my sins. Christ has bared the guilt of that sin. I don't care what you think. They're gathered around the river, Jordan, just confessing their sins. So next Sunday, we're just going to gather. We're going to come together and just confess our sins. Who's in? <laughs> but do you feel and hear that this repent isn't a thing that is crippling to them? This repentance is something that is so incredibly freeing that they stand around the river and just confess their sins one unto another. And maybe the neighbor goes, yeah, well, I knew that about you, but hey, it's good that you see it. Maybe the wife and husband are able to share things that they should have said a long time ago. Maybe dads are kneeling down to their kids, apologizing, confessing their sins, looking at their employers and telling them and confessing. I don't know what is happening here. But there is a confession of saying, I have wronged King Jesus. This repentance seems to have caused a great freedom. Why do I say freedom? Because who in the world is willing to just say, hey, I'm going to throw it out there? Because they have seen Christ as the one who has bore the burden. You see, John is not a popular man. He's not real flashy. He doesn't have a desirable appearance to draw others. But he has a powerful message of repentance that apparently is effective. But yet, we get a group of people who don't quite get it. Let's look at verses 7 to 9. But when he saw, John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, just these are the elite biblical scholars of the day, right? Spiritual leaders of the day. They're coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8. And here's the kicker. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He teases it out more with nine. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, this is John saying, God is able from these stones to rise up children of Abraham. This is a bit overwhelming. Now, John, in his camel hair suit, and a bit odd, perhaps it's not too strange to think he would respond, but it is still extremely strange, isn't it? You brood of vipers. Now here he shifted to not such a great growth plan. What a strange response for John to look at people who are coming to be baptized. That's what the text says. Seemingly, these people who are coming to be baptized are people who are coming in faith and repentance to Jesus, acknowledging that he is their king, their savior, the promised one. I mean, literally, just the verses before we get to these, John was gladly baptizing many people who were confessing their sins. Why is it about these people that he asked them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And I chuckle at that because shouldn't their answer simply be, well, you did, John. <laughs> you just told us to repent. Here, gladly baptizing, people confessing their sins, but yet these people, he stops and says, who told you to come here? When the easy response is, well, you did, John. What is going on with John? 
Well, verse 8, as I signified, gives us a little bit of clarity. See, John's got a sense of what is actually going on in their heart. They are not bearing fruit that signifies true repentance has occurred. Simply put, they are arrogantly relying on titles. Did you catch that? Children of Abraham was a way by which they said, oh, we're good. <laughs> we're good. We don't need to do all that repentance stuff. We're just we're children of Abraham. They're leaning on titles, ethnicity, to say that we are okay. They believe this has made them ready for the kingdom of heaven. They have totally changed and not heard what it means to be in the kingdom of God. You see, and what John does here, understanding where they're coming from, apparently understanding their hearts way better than they even understood their hearts, he looks at them and says, hey, by the way, do not come here, verse 9, and presume, keep it, or presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. John says God could raise up anyone to be children of Abraham. It is a work of God for the salvation of men and women. This is what he's getting at. They're leaning into titles and authority they perceive that they have, that they are okay. And John says, no, 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 you didn't hear me. You need to repent. Namely, he wants them to change their thinking and turn towards King Jesus, not King I. There's a radical difference here that he's leaning into. Don't come here claiming anything else. Come here claiming Christ alone. You need to repent. Believing that you can be okay with God by any title or work of your own. That's what he's saying. One cannot position themselves into heaven. And he's telling them, you better wake up. This is why the language is so strong, because he's serious about repentance. Wake up, judgment is coming. See, the fruit John is talking about is this, a repentance that shows up in action and thinking. You see, there's a change of thinking that occurs. There is a remorse over present sin, and there's certainly non-reliance upon one's goodness. All of these things are fruit when repentance occurs. You see, John actually questions them in order to help them actually experience freedom in Christ rather than titles. He gets past their seemingly godly action, and he says their heart hasn't caught up with the action. You're out here being baptized because there's a big crowd. You're out here mingling with the folks. Oh, baptize me next, John. Well, you've not repented. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, the, the true repentance is the changing of the heart, and the changing of the heart moves its way to godly action. These things work together. We learn so much about repentance in just these few verses. It's a simple message, but isn't it profound? John wants them. I don't think he hates them. I think John wants them to repent and be free. There it is. One, two, three, four. 
repent and be free. Don't hate repentance. See what it does in a person's life. We see people willing to confess, and we see people who are able to be confronted and say, you are putting shackles on yourself if you're relying upon a title to be right with Jesus. Repent and be free. What does this mean for us? Well, thankfully, John does not leave us hanging, nor them. He gives us a a vivid imagery to consider. Let's look at verses 10 to 12. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. (laughs) So vivid. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, what good fruit that shows repentance, right, is, is cut down, thrown into the fire. And he makes the point why. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. How is he mighty? Or he even describes sandals I cannot, I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here's why he is so much more mightier. His winnowing fork is in his hand. This is a way to make a harvest, right? The winnowing fork. And he will clear his threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat into a barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Those who in faith and repentance have turned to Jesus will be gathered. And those who have not repented will be burned with unquenchable fire. See, John is making it plain. His baptism is going to be superseded by Jesus. And the repentant will be gathered. The unrepentant will be burned. Repent and be free. Don't repent and be condemned. This is what he's saying. And here we are at the end of 2023, and you're going, whoa, pastor, slow down. But we need to be reminded this is what and who Christ is. He demands by who he is and the work he has done for us to in humility repent. But can you see in this text that repentance is not something that shackles you. It frees you. We often don't see it that way because what John sees in the end is repent and you'll be free. But don't repent and you're condemned to borrow some of the vivid imagery from john do you feel the coldness of the axe head laid at the root of your soul this morning if you do i've got good news repent and be free in faith turn to christ maybe for some of you this morning are you in a chess match trying to position yourself just right so you can declare the holy checkmate and you can earn a spot in the kingdom of heaven. Just one more move. Just one more move. One more action. Well, I've got good news for you. Repent and be free. How miserable must it be to be in a holy chess match with God? Crushing. For some of us who've walked with Christ for a long time, well, this is good news for you too. Have you repented in faith, trusting Jesus alone as your salvation, but at times you slide back into making your salvation about you and your work? 
I've got good news for you. Repent and be free. In faith, trust Christ. As a pastor once said, we never graduate from the gospel. This is the gospel. If you're with us this morning and this is landing on you in a unique way, and you've never repented and in faith trusted Christ, grab someone. Please grab myself or someone you came with. We would talk to you at length. Brothers and sisters, if you're with us and you have walked with Christ for many years, can I encourage you, 2024 is no different. Repent and be free. Let us in faith trust what Christ has already done for us. Let's pray. Father God, I am thankful for this tough section of Scripture because it is truly good for our souls to hear the truth of John's simple message this morning. Father, we pray that 2024 will be full of repentance, not only in our own personal lives, but Father, would you in tremendous joy allow us to see many of our family members, many of our co-workers, many in our community as we shine the light of Christ to the world around us, that they would repent and in faith trust Christ. Lord, we long to see that this year, but it starts with our own hearts. Father, if there are things throughout 2023 that we have hidden deep in our hearts, that we have pushed aside, unwilling to think about, today's the day. To know that repentance isn't shackles for us, but repentance is freedom to come to Christ, offer and confess our sins unto him, and, and be relieved. He has already paid the penalty. Father, this morning we rejoice. We ask you to go with us as we spend time with family again and friends today. Father, we ask that if some among us don't know you, you'd work on their hearts. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.